I'd invite you to take your Bibles and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We'll be starting at verse 16 this morning. I want to say this, if you are new to our church today and this is the first time that you are here, uh, we are in a series that we've been working through this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a church in Corinth. And we've come to a section where we're dealing with some financial matters. And so if you're new today, I don't want you to think that, you know, here we are, we're in the church and we're always talking about money. Because, no, that's not the case. But we do address it when it comes up in the text. And so we will be talking about it today. And I want you, again, if you're new, to just listen. You know, this is really a message for the believers in our church who call this church their home and our members here. And we want to take to heart what God has to say. I'd like to read uh, part of the passage for us as we begin this morning. So I'm going to start in chapter 8 at verse 16 and read through the end of the chapter. We're actually going to be looking at uh, chapter 9 through verse 5 too, but we'll come to that a little bit later. So listen to what Paul writes. He said, I thank God who put into the heart of Titus the same concern I have for you. For Titus not only welcomed our appeal, but he is coming to you with much enthusiasm and on his own initiative. And we are sending along with him the brother who is praised by all the churches for his service to the gospel. What is more, he was chosen by the churches to accompany us as we carry the offering, which we administer in order to honor the Lord himself and to show our eagerness to help. We want to avoid any criticism of the way we administer this liberal gift, for we are taking pains to do what is right, not only in the eyes of the Lord, but also in the eyes of men. In addition, we are sending with them our brother, who has often proved to us in many ways that he is zealous, and now even more so because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker among you. As for our brothers, they are representatives of the churches and an honor to Christ. Therefore, show these men the proof of your love and the reason for our pride in you, so that the churches can see it. Let's pray again. Father, as we come to your word this morning, we ask that you would help us to understand it, to see how it applies to our life, and to hear what your Holy Spirit wants to say to each of us personally. I thank you for the wisdom that your word gives, for clarity, for instruction on how we should live today. And thank you that we can learn from the example of Paul and the Corinthians and those who have gone before us. And so, Father, would you just bless this time, guide me in what I say today, and help us to hear what you want us to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the things that amazes me about the Apostle Paul is his ability on the one hand to plumb the depths of theology, you know, to talk about rich subjects of theology, about Christ coming to earth, about who he is, about his death on the cross for our sins, and to unpack all of that for us in the scripture. And yet at the same time, Paul can also talk about very practical matters like how to take an offering and how to do that with integrity. And he deals with these practical issues that concern everyday church life. You know, both are important. You have heard me say before that doctrine and life must go together. It really is important what we believe. 
And we need to understand the Scripture. And we need to accept and receive the Scripture as the Word of God. It is authoritative in our life. We need to understand who Jesus Christ is and the way of salvation and the gospel. All of those things are essential to our faith. Yet at the same time, it is also very important how we live. We are to be a people who love one another, who show Christ's love in our relationships, who are obedient to what he has asked us to do in the Scripture. And whenever the church has kind of drifted from one side or the other and, you know, moved away from the doctrinal truths of Scripture or in their lifestyle have moved away from God asks of us, the church has gotten into trouble and the gospel has been lost. And that's why it's important that we hold on to both, that doctrine and life must go together. Those of you who know me know that I like to read, and you can tell that probably from the sermons that I give. Well, recently I've been reading a book on the, the history of Europe in the 14th century. I shared that with our staff team, and Jason, Pastor Jason, said, uh, you do know that there is a history channel, don't you? Uh, you don't have to just read those things. You can kind of watch it in that way. And they were kidding me about that. But uh, you may ask, okay, what was going on in the 4th century, 14th century, excuse me? And it was a very interesting time in Europe, and it was the period in which the Black Death swept across Europe, and half of the population on that continent died. From Iceland to India, it affected all of those population groups. And can you imagine half of the population of the world dying? Uh, there was panic. There was fear. They thought it was a judgment from God. They didn't understand what was happening. But you can imagine if something like that happened in our nation, how people would fear. What was happening also in the church, though, was so sad. The church at that time had become so corrupt Priestly positions were for sale. You want your son to be a priest? It'll cost you a little bit of money. You want him to have a better parish? It's going to cost you a little bit more money. Forgiveness, absolution of sins were for sale. You could buy indulgences to purchase forgiveness for yourself or for those who were in purgatory as they taught. And all of this, you can imagine, with the fear of death and what was happening, all of that became big business in the church. Well, people wanted to do anything to try and ensure some sense of salvation with death looming like that. And the church, again, had become so extremely corrupt. There's a story about Thomas Aquinas, the theologian, who one day called on the Pope. And he came in on the Pope and he found the Pope sitting at his desk and counting money with these stacks of silver and gold in front of him. And the Pope looked up and said to Thomas, he said, Thomas, the church can no longer say silver and gold, have I none. And Thomas looked at him and said, that's true, Pontiff, but neither can the church say, arise and walk. The church had become so corrupt that it had lost its spiritual power. It's not just a problem that occurred in the 14th century, though. We hear and see stories from time to time about corruption even in the church today. We, uh, in the 80s, went through a period of time in our country where you saw the problems with the televangelists. They were getting enormous amounts of money that were being sent in, and we're mishandling that. 
And you heard stories of people like Jim Baker who went to prison because of it and who wrote a book and said, I was wrong. I was wrong. You know, when you think about Satan's strategies to undermine a church or a ministry or even a marriage, bringing it home to family situations too, two of his primary temptations or tactics to use are to either get us to mismanage money or the other tactic is often sexual immorality. If he can get a church or he can get a marriage, you know, to kind of walk down the wrong road in terms of how it handles its money and become very greedy or, uh, you know, want to hold on to things and hoard it, or if he can tempt people in the area of sexual immorality, then he has diminished the power of the gospel. And it hurts. It hurts deeply. So here's a message today that is about financial integrity. And the point I want to make this morning is that administrative excellence is important for a church's testimony to the Christian and the non-Christian community. The world is watching how the church administers and handles the resources that it has been given. John Calvin, the reformer, wrote that there is nothing which is more apt to lay one open to sinister imputations than the handling of public money. Now, we think about that in terms of government. You know, people look at government. They want the government to handle our money well. You think about that with schools. People look at school budgets and school districts and say, you know, we want to know that that money's going to be used well. And the same thing is true in the church. When people give to the church, they want to know that that money is going to be used well. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. And what we're going to find in this passage is that this passage is a call to excellence in three areas. Number one, in the way we handle our money, our resources. And we see that in verses 16 to 21. Let me say this again. When people give to a church or ministry... They want to know that the money will be well used for its intended purposes. So when we give to a church or, say, a ministry, a parachurch organization, a nonprofit like that, the things that we are looking for when we give are a clear statement of purpose or mission. How is this money going to be used? We look for things like, do they have a budget or a plan? Do they have a proven track record or... Uh, Can I trust this person? What is their character like? Is there transparency? Are the funds open so you can kind of see how things have been used? Is there accountability? Are there protections, checks and balances put in place? All of those things are important. And the Apostle Paul would agree with that. In fact, Paul was very careful in how he handled this gift for the poor in Jerusalem. Remember, they are taking this collection among the Gentile churches, and it's going to be a large amount of money, and they are bringing it back to help those poor in Jerusalem who were suffering because of uh, the uh, famines that occurred in that area and because of the persecution that they were under. And Paul did not want to handle this money himself. He didn't want to be the only one involved in this. He didn't want to be open to any charges of suspicion or criticism. And so he writes here in this text before us that we want to avoid any criticism. Tells us that in verse 20. We want to do what is right in the eyes of God and man. 
You see that? We not only want to honor the Lord, we want to do what's right in terms of how people will look at this. It's kind of like when a church or ministry says, you know, we want to follow generally accepted accounting practices. We want to do what's right in this area. And thirdly, and most of all, we want to honor the Lord. And he tells us that in the way that we administer this gift. Now, some of you may look at a list like that, and you might be thinking in your mind, you know, like, well, this doesn't sound very spiritual. (laughs) Or, you know, is this really uh, something that we need to talk about today? And yes, it is. Do we really need to be concerned about how we handle our money as a church and as individuals? Yes, we do. In Song of Songs, the scripture says, it is the little foxes that ruin the vineyards. It's the little things, the little choices, the little slips, if it involves money or management or things like that, that can destroy trust and that can undermine a ministry. The little things that can also ruin a marriage or even a business. My mother, for many years, worked at a county courthouse in the area where I grew up. And she worked in the assessor's office, but she knew everybody else who worked, you know, in the uh, treasurer's office or in the clerk of court or things like that. And one day there was a shocking discovery that was made in another office in that courthouse. Somebody had been taking money, public money. And when the detectives did the investigation and tracked down and found out who it was, there was a woman who was a clerk in one of the offices who every week for a long period of time had just been taking $5 out of the till. $5 out of the till. Just a little thing, but she got into big trouble. You know, she was saying maybe nobody will notice or nobody will see this, just kind of slipping it in. But it is those little things that again can undermine the work that you are trying to do. That's why this is so important that we handle things well as good stewards. I want you to know that we take this very seriously as a church and we have put into place you know, policies and people to give oversight to this area. It's why we have a finance ministry team that you know, reviews things and gives oversight here under the elders. We have a budget that's approved by you, the congregation. We have financial reports that are printed and published so that you can see those on a quarterly or annual basis. But the biggest protection that we probably have in this area really has to do with how we divided up the responsibilities. You know, we have two people that count the cash that is given in the offering. We have a financial secretary who records what people give. But that financial secretary doesn't deal with the other side of the equation. We have another person who is a bookkeeper who, you know, pays the bills but can't sign the checks. She writes the checks, but she can't sign them. We have a third person who is the signer on those checks and who looks at everything and then uh, gets that ready to be mailed. And then we have a treasurer that oversees all of it and that ties things together and prepares the reports. And we have gone to that kind of division of responsibility in a very practical way, both for the protection of the individuals involved, because you know if you're working in the financial area, you don't ever want somebody to question you either. And so there's kind of this checks and balance, but it's also for the protection of the church. And those are just very 
practical things that we try to do in this area of stewardship to give you assurances that the money that you entrust to the church is going to be used well for its intended purposes. But we also know that even as good as policies and plans can be, we know that a system is only as good as the character of the people involved in that ministry. And Paul understood that too. And so he calls us to excellence in the way that we represent the church. And here he is talking about the people that are going to be involved in this ministry. And you saw that, for example, in verses 22 to 24. He said, In addition, we are sending with them our brother who has often proved to us in many ways that he is zealous, and now even more so because of his great confidence in you. And as for Titus, he is my partner. He's my fellow worker among you. And as for our brothers, they are representatives of the churches and an honor to Christ. Therefore show these men the proof of your love and the reason for our pride in you so that our churches can see it. Now look at the character of these men who would handle this offering. You have first of all Titus who is named. And he is called my partner and my fellow worker. He is described in verse 16 as having a great concern for the church in Corinth. He is eager to serve in this ministry to help. He has been chosen by Paul, but he is also approved by the churches. So he is, in a sense, Paul's representative in this. And he will lead the delegation. That's why he is the one who is named. There are two other brothers that are unnamed, but they were elected or chosen by the churches themselves. Uh, the one who is unnamed in verses 18 and 19, it says that he is praised by all the churches. They know this man. They know his character and his track record. And he has been chosen by them. And the word that's used here is really by a show of hands. Kind of like we have done at a congregational meeting when you ask people, everybody in favor, raise your hand. You know, it's like they did that. He is faithful in his ministry, in his service to the gospel, he has been a credit to the work that is going on. He has this good reputation among the church. It's interesting to see how many people have tried to identify this person. Some thought that he was Luke, Paul's traveling partner. Some thought he may have been Barnabas. Some suggested it's Sopater or Secundus or Trophimus or on and on. There's about 12 names that are out there. When you have that many names as to who it could be, it's a good indication that we really don't know who it is. But they did. And they trusted him. They had confidence in him. And then there's a third brother that's mentioned here in verses 22 and 23, who again is proven in ministry. He is a representative of the church, and he is an honor to Christ. It means when it says he is an honor to Christ, that his lifestyle is such that when people look at him, they can see the grace of Christ in him, in his character, the way he relates to people. Wow. These were men of character and integrity who were being asked to handle this offering for the church in Jerusalem. It stresses how important character is. Character matters. Financial integrity is important in a church and ministry. Now, when you look at ministries that you may be familiar with, there are some that have just been outstanding in that regard. 
Billy Graham organization has been kind of the gold standard for many people for years in terms of their integrity and character in this. When Billy Graham uh, started his ministry, you know, he established a board of godly men who oversee it. Uh, they would determine his salary. They would set it, not him. They would handle and oversee the money. He would not. You know, he was just to devote himself to the preaching and teaching of God's word and to use his gifts in evangelism. And there would be other godly men who would handle different parts of the organization. And many have followed that example. I think of Bill Bright. Gail and I were on staff with Campus Crusade for five years. And I just really respected Bill Bright's integrity in this area too, that he and Vonette lived on the same pay scale as everybody else. I mean, he's heading the ministry, but there was a pay scale. If you were married, you had been on staff this many years, this is what you made, and he made that. didn't matter if you were the founder of the organization. It was a remarkable thing. He didn't own a home himself. They rented a place where they lived. He wasn't interested in having, you know, a lot of uh, financial things built up for himself. It was about putting that back into the ministry. I shared last week about Francis Chan, the author of the book Crazy Love, who just did not expect this book to do what it has done. And all of a sudden he has this money that he does not want to touch. He wants to put it in a foundation and give it away. Randy Alcorn is like that too. Randy Alcorn wrote the books The Treasure Principle, which we've used in our church. And he wrote a larger book on money called Money, Possessions, and Eternity that I would highly recommend. I mean, that book is just so good in terms of a perspective on wealth and how we are to use it for the kingdom of God. And Randy Alcorn, again, takes all of those royalties from his books and he's turning that around and he's putting that into ministry. There are examples of character and integrity in how funds are handled. And if you have you know, a, a concern about an organization, say you want to support a certain mission group or missionary or organization, today there has been set up uh, in the United States, there's this Evangelical Council for Fiscal Accountability, ECFA, uh, don't confuse that with our denomination, EFCA. You know, those two are close, but they're different. And uh, you can tell whether an organization has the seal of approval in terms of how it handles funds as a Christian ministry. And there are certain benchmarks there that of all the money raised, you know, a certain percentage needs to go directly into ministry. Can't be used for overhead or other things. And you can check that out. We as a church want to be very careful and how we handle our funds. And so it's important to us that we have people of character and integrity who serve in those leadership positions in ministry. But I would also broaden that to all of you who are members of our church and who are regular attenders here. You know that our reputation affects the Lord and it affects the church. And so I would ask you, do people know you as an honest businessman or businesswoman? Do they see you as a good teacher who cares for his or her students? Do they know you as a hardworking employee or a hardworking farmer? Do they see you as a compassionate doctor or nurse or caregiver 
who again really cares about the people that you are treating or helping? Do they see you as a good student? And I'm talking about more than grades. I'm talking about your attitude or your character, your respect for your teachers or fellow students. I mean, all of those things are just a witness to Christ and to the church. It's, people know, you know, after a time, they may know where you attend or go to church or that you are a Christian, and they're going to watch you and see you. And that's why our witness is so important. Are we an honor to Jesus Christ? And would other people say that about us? And then thirdly, this passage is a call to excellence in the way we keep our commitments. In the way we keep our commitments. I like to read for us verses 1 to 5 of chapter 9. Paul says, There is no need for me to write to you about this service to the saints, for I know your eagerness to help, and I have been boasting about it to the Macedonians telling them that since last year you and Achaia were ready to give, and your enthusiasm has stirred most of them to action. But I am sending the brothers in order that our boasting about you in this matter should not prove hollow, but that you may be ready as I said you would be. For if any Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to say anything about you, would be ashamed of having been so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to visit you in advance and finish the arrangements for the generous gift you had promised. And then it will be ready as a generous gift, not as one grudgingly given. It is a call to excellence in the way that we keep our commitments. You know, Paul writes to the Corinthians here, and he tells them that there's no need for me to write to you again, you know, about this offering. You know what the offering is for. You know who it's going to help. And in fact, you were some of the first to give. You responded so eagerly and wanted to be a part of this offering. They had good intentions, but they were lacking in follow-through. And so here, over a year ago, they had started this collection, and then it kind of fell to the side. Nothing really happened. And Paul is saying, I'm going to send these men so that you can revive this work and so that when I come, it will be ready, a gift generously given. Paul didn't want them to be ashamed or embarrassed when he came. And I look at this and I think, you know what? Paul is so practical here. I mean, Paul understands human nature. He knows our human nature. And he knows that we can be impulsive, there are times when we have very good intentions. We want to do something, you know, people make their New Year's resolutions or they say, I'm going to take this class or I'm going to lose some weight or I'm going to do this. And they don't follow through all the time, do they? We don't. We can be distracted by other things, by just life. Life gets busy. There are other things on our plate. And so we may have all the good intentions to do this, but if we don't have a plan to carry it out, We'll get distracted by something else that will get our attention. We can be lazy and undisciplined. There are times when we maybe feel like it, and then other times when we don't feel like it. And if we just follow our feelings, we won't get done those most important things. And we can also be forgetful. We can get into other things and forget those commitments that we have made. And it doesn't matter if it is losing weight 
or getting regular exercise or learning a new skill or a hobby or even giving to the church. We need someone who can help us, encourage us, and hold us accountable. You know, I like to exercise. I try to do that regularly. And it's really interesting now, you know, those of you that have medical insurance, you know, like Blue Cross, Blue Shield, and other companies say, if you exercise 12 times a month, we will pay $20 of the cost. And so where I go, or where Gail and I go for exercise, if we do that, it's actually free. I mean, you know, the $20 covers the cost of going to the fitness center. Well, you know, I got to admit that I don't always feel like exercising every time. There are times when it's gray and cold outside in winter. I'd rather just go home, you know, put a fire in the fireplace and just enjoy a nice evening at home. But I try to exercise the same time, three times a week when I get over there and do that with consistency. And it's amazing how just having this goal, this sort of standard of 12 times a month, and having somebody who's a partner who will hold me accountable, my wife and I do that for each other here, it's amazing how you can get that done, whether you feel like it or not. The same thing's true when it comes to our giving. When we give, it's important that we keep our commitments. And let me just suggest some of these different areas. You know, some of you are involved in child sponsorship. Through either Compassion or World Vision, you have adopted a child that you are sending a monthly uh, amount of support to to help them. And that is huge. You know, you don't want to make a commitment to child sponsorship and then just do it for three months and stop. Because there's a child that is really counting on you. And it makes a difference in their life and family and with all of their siblings. It's huge. If you were living on $2 a day in another part of the world and you were trying to debate, what do I do today? Or if you saw children dying because uh, they get uh, dysentery or they get diarrhea and they can't even afford the basic medication to treat that, and you watch your son or daughter die, that kind of commitment would be huge. But that takes faithfulness to stay at it month after month after month. If you support a missionary and you make a commitment and somebody's going out to the field and you say you're going to do $25 a month or 50 or 100 it's really important that we keep those commitments and not miss a month, but do that consistently and faithfully. Because they're counting on it. That's their income. That's their support. And when they're out in the field, you know, you don't want them coming back because support fell short and they have to come back. And if you do need to change your level of support, you know, do it on a break when they're on a furlough or back here where they can then respond to that and raise the additional support that they need. Because, yes, circumstances do change on our end. And there are times when people do lose a job or have an illness or something that affects their income. And missionaries understand that. But that's why it's really important, though, that we take these commitments seriously and communicate with them. And the same thing's true with the church. You know, when we adopt a budget and we make a commitment that says we're going to do this and we're going to support these ministries and these missionaries, or when we have a building project, you know, uh, for our building project for the youth center, when you committed $2 million to that, that was huge. 
What a blessing that was. And then to see the faithfulness of those of you who committed to that and carried out those commitments. And some of you, yes, ran into struggles. Were you to change your commitment and weren't able to do everything that you had hoped? But some of you are even now continuing to give to the building fund in that area, and that's just huge. It helps so much. Because we are the church. You look around this room. You look around the people in the balcony. We are the church. In this local place, God has called us together to carry out this ministry. And we need one another. The gifts that we have to use in service and in ministry, the encouragement that comes from our fellowship and worship together, but also in our giving. You know, it's interesting now that there are changes taking place too in a very practical way in giving where um, those of us that are older, we grew up, we use checks to pay for everything. It's not a problem for us to write a check, put it in our offering envelope, use that, drop that in the plate on a Sunday morning. But we have a generation that's coming up behind us, and my kids are like this too, you know. That they don't use cash or checks very often anymore. You know, they use debit cards and they just take things right out. They reconcile everything, you know, online. They've got the whole thing set up in that way. And so in that next generation coming along, there are different ways that are even going to impact how do we do an offering in the church? You know, and unless somebody intentionally says, you know, I'm going to write out a check or I'm going to bring cash and put that in the offering on a Sunday morning, the other ways that you have to look at are electronic checks that people are doing to set aside a certain amount or just this last week we have now set up online giving on our website and you can go online you can click on the icon at the bottom or the words that are there for online giving and you can enter your information and you can do a gift online if that works better for you and uh, it's set up so that you can use your debit card in that way. You could use a MasterCard or a Visa. We're not uh, encouraging you to use a credit card to give to the church as much as we would like you. To, if it's a better way for you to use a debit card, you can do that. But it's also very practical in these other areas. You can look at the whole thing, whether it's online bill pay or an electronic check or things like that. Those are all just practical tools that you can use. Now, I never thought I'd be talking about that in a message, but that's pretty practical stuff, isn't it? Because how we give and the method that we choose to do that really doesn't matter as much as it does the commitment that we make to the Lord. To put Him first and to say, okay, I want to give to you the first fruits of what you have given to me. So what does the Lord want you to give? And everybody's got to look at that and wrestle with the Scripture. And what we see again in Malachi 3.10 is this encouragement from the Scripture where God says, test me in this. You can put that up, uh, the Scripture that's there. He says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and test me in this, says the Lord Almighty. And see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven, and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. I mentioned this text last week, that it's an amazing one. It's the only place in Scripture where we hear God saying, test me, test me in this. If you will put me first in your life and in your giving, you will see what I will do on your behalf. And the blessings that come back, he doesn't promise that all of those blessings are going to be financial. 
Many times they come back in terms of the joy and the peace that we experience in our life or the fruit we see in the ministries that are being touched. But God says, if you will honor me, I will honor you, and I will take care of your needs. I want to share with you a remarkable story that Tom Tangwall told me about his aunt, and Aunt Mim, as they called her. Her name was Marilyn Olson, but they all knew her as Aunt Mim. And I share this story as an example that it is possible to give with rich generosity because sometimes people look, you know, the whole idea of a tithe, I mean, are you ready? Are you really asking me to give 10% of my income to the Lord? Yes, I am. I'm asking you to prayerfully consider that come before the Lord because I believe, you know, that was a standard in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, you know, we are to do grace-based giving but grace always exceeded the law. And we are to give generously and freely to the Lord. And here's an example of this. Tom writes that just this past December, my Aunt Mim passed away suddenly, just two days after celebrating Christmas with my family at our house. She was almost 78 years old and had been feeling good, so it really was a surprise to our family. And in uh, the last six years since my mom and dad had died, I'd had regular long phone visits with Aunt Mim. She was the one who stayed in contact with everybody in the family. You know, you probably have somebody like that in your family tree who just is the person who keeps in touch with everybody. Aunt Mim never married, but she was like a second mom for 12 nieces and nephews. She had been a first and second grade teacher for most of her professional career, and then later she became an elementary school principal in the Hopkins School District. She retired in her early 60s, but she stayed very active. And Tom said we all knew that she was very generous with nieces and nephews. You know, she would remember birthdays and Christmas. You know, she'd give thoughtful gifts to people. And he said the outfit she gave to my granddaughter Maddie for Christmas will wear out before she outgrows it because she wants to wear it every day. Mim gave nice things that were gifts that people enjoyed. But Mim also prayed daily for all of her nieces and nephews as we were growing up. Mim's devotion to daily prayer gave her the type of Christ-like love that she had for the people in her life. She had a morning prayer list and she had an evening prayer list. And everybody in her family was on that list that she remembered so faithfully. Well, with no children of her own, after she died, it was left to her nieces and nephews to sort through her affairs. She had appointed the oldest uh, nephew in her family a tree, you know, to be the executor for her estate. And so Keith started to go through her records to get things all in order. And he was astounded to learn how much she had given away to the Lord. He shared that with the family, told some of the details, and as it turned out, Aunt Mim had been giving a tithe to three different churches, to her home church where she had grown up, to the church that she currently attended, and then to a church where one of her nephews was the pastor. She gave to many other organizations as well, ministries and missionaries. In fact, Keith told us that according to her 2009 income tax records, she gave away 90% of her income and lived on 10%. That's astounding 
They also said it's no wonder that the IRS audited her once, you know, they did an audit because she was way above what people are supposed to give, but she had all her records there in order, and she just gave it all away. It is possible to do that. There are stories of other Christians, like you have heard the story of Letourneau, the man who designed all of these earth-moving equipments that you see on every construction project that's in the country. You know, the bulldozers and the heavy operating equipment, he designed that. And he gave away 90% of his income to the Lord. He said, I keep shoveling it out and God keeps shoveling it in, but he has a bigger shovel than I do. And he just couldn't outgive the Lord. What an amazing thing that is. And so for us to look at what he has given to us and say God has given us 100% of what we have, and for us to give back a tenth, a tithe of that, is not really that much in the grand scheme of things. It is a way that we honor the Lord and we say thank you to him where we acknowledge that he is our Lord, our Savior, the giver of all that we have. What will you do? Are you ready to start to tithe? Would you be ready to do that now? I want you to prayerfully come before the Lord with that. If you feel like on your circumstance right now, man, I don't know that I could do that, but I want to I take a step in that direction. Okay, take a step. But my challenge to you is to begin to tithe do that for a period of six months. Take a look at what you have and see what God does. Give Him time to work in your circumstances as well so that you can experience the joy of giving and the blessings that come. Paul writes, see that you excel in this grace of giving. And we want to do that in the way that we handle our money. We want to do that in the way that we represent the church. And we want to do that in the way that we keep our commitments. For his honor and glory. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I thank you again for your word and for how it deals with practical matters of life that touch us, touch our budget, touch our income and our finances, but that are so important as acts of worship. I know that it is a step of faith, but it's also a step of obedience to you. And Father, when I think about what you could do if we would all take this to heart, and we would give as you intend, Lord, we would have so much joy in being able to support additional ministries and missionaries and to send people out and to reach out in this community to help those who are in need. Father, the possibilities are just wide open. So, Lord, would you teach us to give? Teach us to give. And may we see what you do as a result. In Jesus' name, amen.